just chanted. You just chanted. This Dharma. Rarely met. Difficult to encounter. Even in a million years. How do we meet it? And when we meet it? What happens? Twenty minutes ago we got back from a walk outside. Got a little cooler, a little damper, a little drizzle. We were surrounded by it. By the dawn. Yet our attention is almost always elsewhere. It's rarely met because we rarely put our attention there. Not because it is nowhere to be found. We get glimpses of it. Then go right back to the cocoon, the shelter, or perceived shelter. And we're here to break through, to break out of the cocoon, and to emerge. But for what? For what purpose? For what point? What's wrong with the cocoon? Feels good. It's familiar. Actually, it feels good even when it doesn't feel good. So for what purpose should we meet the dog? This is a case from the Blue Cliff Record. Hands and eyes of the Bodhisattva of great compassion. The pointer. If your whole body were an eye, you still wouldn't be able to see it. If your whole body were an ear, you still wouldn't be able to hear it. If your whole body were a mouth, you still wouldn't be able to speak of it. If your whole body were mind, you still wouldn't be able to perceive it. Living aside whole body for the moment, if suddenly you had no eyes, how would you see? Without ears, how would you hear? How would you hear? Without a mouth, how would you speak? Without a mind. How would you proceed? Here, if you can unfurl a single pathway, then you'd be a fellow student with the ancient Buddhas. But leaving aside studying for the moment, under whom would you study? The case. Yunyan 
once asked Tao, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes for? Tao said, it's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. Yunyan said, I understand. Tao said, how do you understand it? Yunyan said, all over the body are hands and eyes. Tao said, you have said quite a bit there, but you only said 80% of it. Yunyan said, well, what do you say, elder brother? Tao said, throughout the body are hands and eyes. verse. All over the body is right. Throughout the body is right. Bringing it up is still a hundred thousand miles away. Spreading its wings, the rock, soars over the clouds of the six compounds. It propels the wind to beat against the water of the four oceans. What speck of dust suddenly arises? What wisp of hair hasn't stopped. You don't see? The net of jewels hanging down in patterns, reflections upon reflections. Where do the hands and eyes on the staff come from? Bah! Too much talking. Indeed, too much talking. So we're here a few days into this, being submerged in the depth of a sashimi, collecting all the pulse together to what is called total absorption, leaning against the silence. in that, what do we encounter? Is that the Dharma? Or we just hear the birds chirping? We just see the, hear our minds churning. Our stomachs gargling. What do we hear? as we begin to descend into extended periods of silence, stillness, and diminish the production of sounds and movement. The thinking mind begins to feel malnourished. So it actually increases the activity for the sake of finding something to graze on. So, of course, we find ourselves regurgitating on old memories, play old songs in our minds, fantasize, futurize. And so, at the beginning part of the session, it seems that the outer world gets, while the outer world gets quiet, it seems that the inner world, gets louder. 
seems this way because this is where our attention goes. Because there's nothing around us that grabs it. We're not producing anything to entertain our attention. We're not engaged in anything that can do that. But at some point, hopefully by now, almost, the chatter of the thinking mind subsides. And what we call the inner world becomes more in tune with what we call the outer world. The lines become more blurry. The silence within begins to awaken to the true silence of the world. Maybe we begin to recognize that what at first is perceived as a foe is actually a dear friend. What first seems to be a gap or a wall is in fact not there. Something gets dropped. You know, Zen training can be described as a process of perfecting the art of listening and seeing. But in that, instead of assuming that we need to perfect the way the ear and the eye work, we actually tackle this process from a deep trust that the eye and the ear are working just fine. The one we have. The one we are, the ones we are using, not the ones we want. And when we trust that the eye is fine, the ear is fine, then the efforts can be directed to perfecting the way we use them, or perfecting the way we use attention. We pay attention mostly to the wrong stuff. You know, you sit someone in front of TV and yeah, they pay attention, especially if it's a favorite show. But how can we use the eyes, the ears? How can we use discernment when we look, when we listen? when we practice cultivating awareness. For what? What should we be aware of? So as we begin training, the beginning years, or maybe even the beginning of a sashin, the seeing and the listening are absorbed in thoughts and feelings of self-concern. And most of what we hear represents a coin-sized world made up of 
conceptual fragments. This is the tiny world in which we reside, not the reality world, the imagined. That's what we, that's the cocoon. This is where what we have to break out of. In her book, Mysticism, Evelyn Underhill wrote, <coughs> the sphere of our possible intellectual knowledge is strictly conditioned by the limits of our personality. On this basis, not the ends of the earth, but the external termini of our own sensory nerves are the termini of our exploration. And to know oneself is in reality to know one's universe. She says we are locked up within our perceiving instruments. Isn't that true? What we see, mostly what we see and what we hear, is what we know. And yet, the vastness of reality, the universe of the Dhamma, is unknown, unknowable. So how do we see what we don't know? How, do we, how can we listen to what we don't know? We think we have never heard it before, but that won't be true either. We always hear it. We always see it. We use our eyes as if blind, use our ears as if deaf. Playing the same old songs over and over again. It's like we walk around with a paint palette and a brush. Whatever we encounter, we paint it in our own personal colors. Make it match our likings. I like blue, so I'll make everything look blue. Makes me feel more comfortable, more at ease, more at home. Do we feel at home when we walk outside? In the rain? When it's damp or cold? So, are we waiting until we arrive enter, close the door, and then look at outside through the window. And what do we see when we look through a window? Is it, diff is it much different than looking at TV? I mean, we're not experiencing it, same as watching a show, a TV show. We're not experiencing what's going on. We're not partaking. We're like outsiders in our own reality. And we become so obsessed with our own personal needs and desires to a point that we deaden the ability to listen 
to what's going on, which means we deaden the ability to listen to others. We just hear ourselves. We, as in all of us, in this room, in this county, in this country, and in the world, this is universal disease, the disease of the mind. How can we hear others? How can we hear the, the needs of the planet? Yeah, this planet that nurtures us, sustains us, yet we ignore it, at least as a country these days. So our work is to gradually, little by little, become more and more quiet within and still to a point of blurring the lines between self and others to a point of melting the wall that separates between the person and the environment to a point of being able to walk outside yet not feel outside feel the rain or the mist on the face and be at home, even when it's unpleasant. Today is Earth Day, by the way. What a great way to celebrate Earth, being in Sashimi. And it's just a day on the calendar. I mean, the day was added just as a reminder for us to be more mindful of the way we treat this planet. And to examine the self-concerned habits we have developed as human beings. But us, as, a, as practitioners, we have to go further, go deeper into this examination process and actually recognize ourselves as the ground we tread and the air we breathe. Not just in a self-serving way of feeling the need to stop polluting the air because we are breathing or to not poison the ground because we need to eat the food we grow in. that very quickly become, again, self-concerned. We poison the air, we poison ourselves. We are what we breathe, we are what we walk on. Not metaphorically. Of course it doesn't feel this way, because we live in a cocoon. 
because we are so self-concerned. That's why everything we do here has to do with others. The one mind, Sashin. One body. One earth. As each of us. We have to recognize that the climate changes we experience are a reflection of our own behavior because nothing exists unto itself. We are actually born into this infinite interwoven canvas and we die in it. We are never a part of it. So what we see is what we create in our minds. Now the state of our planet, the state of humanity, uh, both show us how misaligned we are with the fundamental truth of interdependent origination. And maybe that's highfalutin words, but it shows us how cocooned we are, how self-concerned, self-centered we are. Maybe that's a language we understand better. And the point is not to become philosophical about this. The point is to shake it up, shake ourselves up, wake up. Wendell Berry, an American writer and environmental activist, said, the earth is what we all have in common. It's a very simple and truthful statement. The earth is what we all have in common. Which means when the earth is in distress, so are we. When others are suffering, so are we. When we suffer, so are others. Vimalakirti, a historical figure at the time of the Buddha, was considered the most deeply realized layman practitioner of the Buddha. At one point he was taken ill and so the Buddha sent a few of his disciples to visit him. When Manjushri showed up, he approached Vimalakirti and asked, Layman, what is the cause of your illness? Has it been with you for long? And how can it be cured? Vimalakirti replied, This illness of mine is born out of ignorance and feelings of attachment. Because all living beings are sick, therefore I am sick. If all living beings are relieved of sickness, then my sickness will be mended. Why? Because the Bodhisattva, for the sake of living beings, enter the realm of birth and death. And because 
He is in the realm of birth and death. He suffers illness. If living beings can gain release from illness, then the Bodhisattva will not be ill. Pretty clear. It's clear if we want to hear it, if we are willing to hear it. But then the mind comes and says, it makes no sense. If somebody is ill, then I'm fine. I look around, I look at myself, and I feel good, I breathe well. So, it must be their illness, their problem. They're suffering. I'm good. I just make sure that the door is closed and the temperature of the room is to my liking. And I got the right food, the food I like in the refrigerator. Other than that, who cares? Who cares? We do. So the recognition of this illness Vimala Kirti is speaking about and the way to address it is what this koan brings up. Yunyan is asking his Dharma brother, Ta Wu, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion use so many hands and eyes for? Now, they're talking about Kanon, Kanzeon, as we chant, Avalokiteshvara, which is often depicted in a statue with many arms, hands, many eyes. Sometimes it's depicted a statue of, as we have in the dojo, of a woman, men, or both. It's actually you look at closely, look at it closely, it's tough to say whether it's a woman or a man. But one leg is down, one leg is one is bent, ready to assume action, not in a meditative state. Ready to take action. Ready to become what is needed at the time it's needed. But often we walk by, oh, that's a nice statue, nice colors, and we keep going. So, in the statues that are depicted with the many hands, many eyes, each hand is holding a different tool, different implement. And it's showing the adaptability we need in responding to the situation. As in the phrase, assume the shape according to the need. So rather than think that we have to walk around with a huge toolbox, we are the tool. We are potentially the tool that will be needed or is needed at every given moment. We actually are shape shifters. 
we are potentially shapeshifters, but obviously when we walk around with a very defined shape based on the storyline, we are not adaptable. We are not able to assume the shape according to the need. Oh, I know my shape already. Or maybe I know what I'm not like. I know what is not my shape. But that's the sickness. So that's the explanation, right? But union already knew that. And Tao knew that Yunyan was not interested in intellectual interpretation or explanation. Now, these were Dhamma brothers, both devoted to and followers of Zen for many years. Actually, they both studied and succeeded Master Yaoshan, 8th, 9th century, China. So the purpose of this dialogue between them, as many other recorded conversations between these two, was actually to bring to life rather than to discuss and philosophize. And the footnote actually says, why do you ask, reverend? Why bring it up? Do you ask because you want to know? Why do you ask? So when we don't look for answers in explanations or explanatory maneuvering, where do we go? How else should we respond to such a question? How do we ask a question? This is why, this is what we are required to do showing up at Dobasan with an answer to a koan or an expression of a koan. We're not asked to explain. Sometimes we do. But it doesn't stay there, it keeps moving. So instead of coming with an answer, we have to come with life. That's what Tao is doing when he says, it's like someone reaching back, groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. Now, when you look at it, when you look at the question, you look at the answer, one seems like one has nothing to do with the other. You can ask, well, are you tired? What's wrong with you? It's like someone reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. Now put yourself in that situation, at night, dark, you're asleep, you reach for the pillow, are there any calculations or thoughts leading to that natural act? Is there any hesitation, debate, lack of trust? in the movement of the hand 
reaching for the pillow to arrange it. Is the question about the angle of the hand or the gap between the fingers grabbing the pillow? Or any thoughts about what's this pillow made of? What color is it? I can't see the color. It's all dark. How many thread count? It sounds ridiculous, but this is, we are actually that ridiculous. Our questions are like that. Instead of being alive to life itself, we step outside, close the windows, look outside, ask questions. So Union then said, I understand. And Tao replied by saying, well, how do you understand this? I understand. And then he replies by, how do you understand this? See, they just keep revolving the Dharma. It never stops. It keeps moving, it keeps flowing. flowing. When one says, I got it, the other one says, well, what do you mean by that? It doesn't end. Because they're not talking about a discussion. They're not entertaining each other with a dialogue. They're not feeding the mind with interesting thoughts. In fact, the mind doesn't know how to feed off it. Because it doesn't make sense. It's what they call the hammerhead without a hole. What do you do with it? What do you put the stick? The union said, all over the body are hands and eyes. It's a good answer. Actually, that's an answer that makes sense going along this flow. All over the body, hands and eyes. When there's nothing that is not an eye, everything is recognized as soon as it emerges. But they don't stop there either. Tao kept going and said, you have said quite a bit there, but you only said 80% of it. And you said, okay, well, what do you say? And Tao said, throughout the body are hands and eyes. Better, worse, Clearer, not as good as the first answer. Is that the twenty missing twenty percent? You only said eighty percent of it. Eighty percent is a lot when you think about the hundred percent. It's pretty close to a hundred. It's a lot, right? Is it enough? 
is it enough? You know, with practice, there is this sense of I'm going to arrive at the at completion at the point, some point. I will feel this or that, or I'm not there yet. I'm only five percent, ten percent, thirty percent. So that can create, by itself, that can create more discontentment. But that's not what they're talking about. There's a way to not be satisfied with 30%. And there's a way to recognize that 30% means I will keep practicing and deepening for the rest of my life. which I think is quite encouraging. To never arrive. So we don't wait for anything else to happen. Now that takes care of that. Well, I'm never going to arrive, so how about this? Does this work? Can I deepen my experience of this? In the commentary, Yuan Wu says to this Quran, he says, People these days often make up in emotional interpretations and say that all over the body is wrong while throughout the body is right. They are merely chewing over the ancient words and phrases. They have died in the ancient words, far from realizing that the ancient's meaning isn't in the words. And all that talk is used as something that cannot be avoided. People these days add footnotes and set up patterns saying that if one can penetrate this case, then this can be considered understanding enough to put an end to study. Groping with their hands over their bodies and over the lamp and the pillar, they all make literal understanding of throughout the body. If you understand this way, you degrade those ancients quite a bit. But thus it is said, he studies the living phrase, he does not study the dead phrase. You must cut off emotional defilements and conceptual thinking. Become clean and naked, free and unbound. Only then you will be able to see this saying about great compassion. Too much talk, as in the verse. Now, compassion sounds like a worthy cause. Worthy of what? Sounds like what? It doesn't sound like anything. It doesn't. It's only action, 100% action, everything else is extra, actually everything else gets in the way of compassion, even the word compassion gets in the way of compassion, because we all walk around with 
interpretations of it. I know what it means. And I'm not ready yet. Or maybe in the morning I'm ready for compassion. Later on, ah, tomorrow. No compassion today. I ran out. I'm tired of thinking about others. So Yuan Wu is saying that if we want to understand true compassion, we need to dive into functioning that is not hindered by emotional and intellectual interpretations. Like in groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. It's like that. It is like that. Because when you grope for a pillow in the middle of the night, it is about a need of the moment. The need arises, the hand moves. Where's the gap? And in that, the need and the hand are not separated. Actually, the whole body is not separated from the pillow or the bed. Maybe we need to go to sleep. Maybe we function better when we are asleep. We need to wake up from one dream and go into another. Maybe a more beneficial dream. You know, commenting on this koan, Dogen said, in the night is an expression of the darkness. It's like Speaking of seeing the mountains in the light of day, we should examine the difference between nighttime as it is as it is supposed in the light of day and nighttime as it is at night. In total, he says, we should examine it as that time which is neither night nor day. Neither night nor day. A continuous flow or a continuum in which there is never a gap between self and other, self, environment, a continuum in which anything is felt throughout the body, the body of reality. Any illness is felt throughout the whole body. So when the earth is in distress, we are in distress. We are the body of reality. And Logan goes on to say, is the person in the words like a person only a word in a metaphor? Or is this person being a normal person, not an ordinary person? 
if studied as a normal person, Buddhism, the person is not only metaphorical, in which case there is something to be learned in groping for a pillow. Who is that person? Is that a regular person? Is that a special person? Is that different than what you are right now? Is there another? Who else? Logan points out that Canons, hands and eyes are not something attached to her body, which would make them separate entities. But rather they are expressions of the totality of her being. As it is in groping for a pillow in the middle of the night. An expression of being. The hand, the tool that it is holding, and the situation being attended are inseparable. And this is how compassionate action manifests. As in Bodhidharma's triple emptiness. No giver, no gift, no receiver. The gift contains the giver and the receiver. The receiver contains the gift and the giver. And the giver contains the other two. How could it not? Do you separate the toes from the body? The ears? One body. The dialogue that illustrates the genuine naturalness of the Bodhisattva's action. It's between Zen Master Da Yang, who was the teacher, and his disciple Jing Yang, who actually were in the same lineage as Yunyan and Tao. That was about a hundred years later. Once when Jing Yang was chief gardener, he was tending to the melons. Dayang asked him, when will the sweet melons be ripe? Zhigyang said, now they're already very ripe. Dayang said, pick the sweet ones and take them away. Zhigyang said, to whom shall I give them? Dayang said, give them to someone who hasn't been in the garden. Zhigyang said, do you think that people who haven't been in the garden will eat them? Dayang said, I don't know these people. I'm sorry. Dayang said, Do you know these people or not? And Jingyang said, Although I don't know them, I can't help but provide for them. Although I don't know them, I can't help but provide. Diane laughed and went off. 
talking about? Is it produce talk? Produce time? Sweet melons, are they ripe? How ripe is your practice? How ready are you to give to others, to share? When will it be ripe? When will you be ripe? When is compassion fully cooked, ready to be served? Maybe it's missing some spices. Not ripe yet. From the first moment we enter Zen practice, first moment, we are required, we are asked to practice this, to practice giving wholeheartedly, whatever we can give. And that grows, that actually deepens with time and practice. But we're not waiting. We're not waiting to complete certain amount of, certain number of uh, Zazenkais, Sashins. We're not waiting to take Jukai, to be ordained, or to be a teacher. It doesn't matter. None of it. ripe enough today because the need is ripe that's why and because we can take the shape that's needed because we can we have what is needed what this planet needs what other people need This is a great line, what Jin Yang is saying. Although I don't know them, I can't help but provide for them. Why? It's like reaching for a pillow in the middle of the night. I can't help it. My hand just reaches. It just happens. Of course. Action-oriented. The verse says, all over the body is right, throughout the body is right. Bringing it up is still a hundred thousand miles away. Bring it up, we end up paying attention to the discussion, to the thoughts, to how we feel about it. Makes me feel good to be good, to do good for others. That's being a hundred thousand miles away. Because it's self-serving. Actually, compassion, true compassion, is self-serving. 
but it's selfless because it serves the one body because it's the one body serving itself so yes but not at the beginning or at least not in the way we think about it. Spread, spreading its wings, the rock is our sea, soars over the clouds of the six compounds, and the rock is a huge bird, mythical bird, that soars over the clouds of the six compounds, six senses way, way above where the six senses don't even reach. Free off being tethered to any of the senses. It propels the wind to beat against the waters of the four oceans. That's how big it is. What speck of dust suddenly arises? Dust? What is that? What wisp of hair hasn't stopped? You don't see? The net of jewels hanging down in patterns, reflections upon reflections. Indra's net. Everything is interconnected, interdependent, co-arising. Whatever happens on one side of the net is spelled throughout the entire net. Each one of us. Where do the hands and eyes on the staff come, come from? Ah, too much, too much talking. So we, we practice. Practice now to be still and quiet within for the sake of others, for the sake of this planet, so we can listen, so we can be in tune, so we can feel the pain, to bear witness, so we can love this. So we can walk outside, be out on a hike, sit on a rock, look at the trees, smell, take it in. Oh, my brothers and sisters, all here. The Great Mother supporting us. So we can feel at home. To, to break through, to emerge out of the cocoon. To stop thinking about ourselves so much. It's not easy. Not simple. Being in alignment is simple. But it's not so simple to fine-tune 
And this is what we do. We fine-tune. We regulate. So we practice so we can transcend the barrier of the small self and recognize ourselves in everyone we meet and everything we look at. So yesterday I talked about realization a little bit. And the Khan brought up realization. Two different ways to awaken. And today's Khan is about compassionate action. But these are not two separate subjects. What we awaken to is exactly that. We awaken out of the dreamland of separate existence into a reality of interconnectedness in which compassion is not even a question. It's not something to ponder. It's life itself. And I look around and I see you. I see all of you. I see how you function here. We walk around and yes, we try to not make eye contact. We, we try to not communicate verbally. Or, or at least minimally, just when needed. But it's not that we are not connected. It's the other way around. Sometimes the, the, the more we shut up, the deeper the connection is. Because we feel us, we feel each other in a different way. A much deeper way. And if somebody needs something, you can sense it. You can sense it if you are willing to be in tune, if you are willing to put yourself aside for a little while. Some do it, some not so much. Some look around in a different way. All over the body, eyes. The whole body becomes an eye. So if I look downward, it doesn't mean I'm not seeing. I see everything. And if there's a need, there I am to take care of it. Whether it's in the kitchen, whether it's in the dining room, whether it's in the yoga, warm-up room. Even being tired, even waking up early in the morning, even if your roommate snores, even if you only got two hours of sleep. It's not I'm too tired to care for others. I'm too tired to care for others is I'm asleep. I'm cocooned. 
So, tomorrow this session ends. Seems like we just started and it goes by very fast. You know, we hear every night, you're sent to bed with, do not squander your life. That's the last chant you hear before you go to bed. Do not squander your life means do not squander this issue. Because this is the rest of your life. Now, today is the rest of your life. You squander this, you squander your life. You don't pay attention, or you pay attention to what you brought with you, you squander your life. You think about tomorrow night, Monday morning, family, work, or whatever. You squander your life. Is it clear enough? So with that, this is the beginning of the session, right now. And that's how we begin. 